Thank you for listening to this gospel resource from Cornerstone Baptist Church in Wiley, Texas. Feel free to use or share this resource, but we ask that you not alter the content in any way. For more information about Cornerstone Baptist Church, please visit us at cornerstonewiley.org. Good morning. Good to be here again today. It's my final week. I'll be taking a two and a half week vacation next time. So this will be, I'm not sure who will be here next week, but it won't be me. I promise you that. But it's been a delight to be up here and to preach to you all. The response is always encouraging. It's just a delight to study and prepare to feed the people of God. We're going to be looking at another psalm today, and that's going to be Psalm 131. I know I say this every week, but this is probably one of my favorite, if not my favorite, psalm. Literally, it really, one of the first psalms ever memorized, and it's a very short one, so it's very easy to memorize. But I think you'll see, as I read it, Psalm 131, what a delightful little gem of a psalm it is. And it's a very short one, so you'll pass it very quickly. Psalm 31, 131, starts with the heading, A Childlike Trust in the Lord, a Song of Ascent of David. O Lord, my heart is not proud, nor nor are my eyes haughty. I do not involve myself in great matters or in things too difficult for me. Surely I have composed and quieted my soul. Like a weaned child rests against his mother, so my soul is like a weaned child within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forever." You can see the, the delightfulness here of the figures of speech used as a, uh, a weaning child resting against his mother's breath. It, it speaks uh, a wonderful compassion and gentleness and kindness and, and deep satisfaction that we have in the Lord. And notice it's called the Songs of Ascent of David. Now that Songs of Ascent there is a very important uh, idea. What, means, what it means is uh, keep in mind that the Israelites three times a year went on pilgrimages where they would travel to Jerusalem uh, as many times as they could. And remember, Jerusalem was set up on a hill. You ever hear kids Mount Zion? That's one of the four hills that built Jerusalem, that Jerusalem was built around. So they would go up from the Valley of Kindred to the city of Jerusalem, which was about 2,500 feet above sea level. Now, the valleys weren't that far, but you did have to actually go up. So as you went up, they would often sing these songs of ascent. And so there were songs that basically prepared their hearts as they went up to the city to begin their festivals of worship. So they're very significant psalms. Normally, they're very short psalms. This one here is a couple of verses. There's ones that are even shorter, some that are a little bit longer, but they're normally very short, sweet psalms that these the brethren w- would sing to themselves, usually in groups, as they went up to worship, to put their hearts and their minds in the mode of worshiping. God. Again, they're very short and, and sweet psalms. Now, in David, he, he, basically what he does here is he makes three negative declarations in verse 1. Let me read it again. O Lord, my heart is not proud, nor are my eyes are, are my eyes haughty, nor do I involve myself in great things or in things too difficult for me. He's saying here that, first of all, uh, his eyes are not proud, or his heart is not proud, his eyes are not haughty, and he does not involve himself in great things or in matters or things that are too difficult for me. He says, um, basically, the idea of the, his eyes being lifted or his heart being proud, these are metaphors that we're, most of us are familiar with, uh, and it, it talks about being proud or being having a, a sinful uh, ambition. And doesn't mean that all ambition is bad. We all need some ambition to succeed in life. But this is a, a, a sinful ambition, one that is overreaching and, uh, ambi- overreaching and ambitious. So it's not that we 
cannot be ambitious, but this is reaching beyond what the Lord has given us to seek or to, search, to seek for. Uh, the eyes being lifted here, are, again, are a figure of speech that represents pride, while eyes being lowered in the scripture is a sign of humility. You children probably know the, the parable of the Pharisee and the publican or the tax gatherer, right? The, the, the Pharisee goes up and he's boasting about all the great works he did. He's standing there in the temple in front of the presence of God, talking about all the things that he's done for God, how pleased God must be with him. And remember the tax gatherer, the publican, where is he standing? There's three things that are said about him. He, he's back afar. He can't even approach the presence of God. He says he's beating his breast. And what does it say about his eyes? He said he can't even lift his eyes up to heaven. That's the humility that this man had expressed in him beating himself, beating his breast, his distance from the presence of God, and the fact that his eyes were lowered. They cannot be lifted up to heaven. And David is expressing that same humility here. Uh, he, he, two more phrases that highlight this. He says, nor do I involve myself in great matters or things too difficult for me. This means David understands the inherent limits he and all mankind have as creatures. Uh, there are certain limits God God has placed upon us that we are to respect and honor as creatures with him being the creator. Uh, there's a number of examples in this in the scriptures. One of my favorite ones is Deuteronomy 29.29. This is as God uh, prepares to send the new generation of Jews into the land to take over the land. He reminds them of this. He says, the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things revealed belong to us and our sons forever that we may observe all the words of this law. What God is doing here is he's placing limits on their knowledge, saying there are certain things that you can know, that you have a right to understand, that I've revealed to you, but there are things that I have not spoken to you that you have no business seeking or trying to understand. Uh, there are things that God does that he simply chooses not to reveal to us. A humble man accepts those limits and embraces what the Lord has revealed, knowing that it is for our good, not just our good, but he says for our children's good, that we may keep the words of your law. One commentator says this, the great and wonderful things meant are God's secret purposes and sovereign means for their accomplishment, in which man is not called to cooperate, but to acquiesce. So these things that God speaks of that we, we get a, a little taste of, and our, our desire, our sinful desire, is to dig further into it than what God has said. But what David says here, I don't go beyond that. I take what God says, and I stop there. I accept it, and I believe it, and I go no further than what God has actually spoken. Another example of this, my favorite example, actually Deuteronomy 29, 29 is my favorite, one of my favorite verses, but the uh, book of Job has a wonderful example. In fact, the whole book of Job is an example of this idea. I remember Job uh, suffers uh, a great deal. Remember, and just think of all that Job suffered. Uh, he lost his livestock. All his animals were killed, probably hundreds and hundreds of animals. Uh, he lost his children. All of his children died. Uh, grandchildren, all of his descendants, except his, his unhelpful, complaining wife, were gone. All of his servants were killed. We often don't think of all that what Job went through, all that he suffered at the hands of the Lord. And so his friends come, and they're not helpful. They're just grinding salt into the wound. I, I love what he calls them, a, a, a dry a riverbed. They don't bring any refreshment to him. They've come all this way, and what do they do? They basically just toss dust in his face. So all this stuff happened to him, and there's all this great discourse, of 37, 38 chapters of discourse. And when it's all over, 
how does God respond to Job? How does God explain himself? He basically says, Job, it's none of your business why these things happen. None of your business. He says this in chapter 38 to Job. He says, who is this that darkens counsel with words without knowledge? Now gird up your loins like a man, speaking here to Job, and I will ask you, you instruct me, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who set its measurements since you know, or who stretched the line on it, or what or what were you, or what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? And the Lord continues with this line of reasoning and questioning for almost two lengthy chapters. Uh, when it's all over, uh, he says this, what, uh, Job basically says this, um, what will the fall, oh God, I'm sorry, God concludes, with these words, will the fault finder contend with the Almighty? Let him who reproves God answer it. What God is saying here is, look, Job, why I did these things is none of your business. It's my creation. I made it. I put you here. You are my servant. Therefore, I don't, I'm not obligated in any way to explain to you what I did. Despite the great amount of suffering, there's no explanation needed. And Job responds this way, Behold, I'm insignificant. What can I reply to you? I lay my hands on my mouth. Once I have spoken and I will not answer, even twice I will add nothing more. Then the Lord goes on for another two chapters with this same line of reasoning, questioning Job. Where were you when I did this? He says, I know... Uh, and finally, Job concludes this way. He says, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have declared that which I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Now, that word wonderful there that Job confesses not knowing is the very same word David uses here to describe I did not take up things too wonderful for me. Job realized after this four chapters of questioning uh, that he has no business asking. He cannot proceed or pursue things that are too wonderful for him. And all that the Lord has done, all that he has described, is that work, that, that stuff that is too wonderful for him to pursue. So David recognizes that there are limits that, to him as a creature that he cannot pursue, and he is content with that. Paul expresses this well in Romans 9, where he says to those who are questioning the justice of God uh, based regarding election, he says this, who are you, O man, who answers back to God? The thing molded will not say to the molder, why did you make me like this, will it? Or does the, not the potter have a right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another vessel for common use? So again, Paul expresses this idea of knowing the limits of what we can pursue is knowledge regarding the works of God. Now, there's a dominant sense here of knowing our limits as creatures in light of the authority of our creator, but there's also the idea that our contentment comes from knowing our limits among each other as well regarding our society within the framework of creation. God has given all of us a certain level of intellect. He's given us specific passions that often differ. Um, and he's given us an emotional makeup that to a large part determine and limit what we can and what we should do. Uh, that we must accept if we are to be content and humble. Uh, there's in a sense a vertical aspect where we accept our limitations that God has given us in relation to him, and there's also a horizontal aspect of our limitations as we function in our society. Uh, I'll give an illustration of this. I think I may be uh, clouding this up a little bit. When I, when I was in college, I took a, uh, I was a computer science major, and the 
the program that I was in or the school I was in didn't have an engineering degree. Normally, computer science majors are engineering majors. And since they didn't have one, they loaded us up with a lot of math instead of the engineering class that we would normally have. And you almost got a minor in math in your, your uh, computer science studies. And I found out that I, I really liked doing the math. I, I thoroughly enjoyed the math. And it was advanced mathematics, too. And uh, I found out, well, I could take two more classes and get a minor in math. And so I, I got a minor in math. And I thought, well, if I take four more, I can get a major. Now, I was really tired of all the, you know, the silly psychology classes taught by TAs or, or disinterested professors or, or the literature classes. I thought, well, let me go talk to my, my counselors and my professors. Maybe if I, I load up on these heavy-duty advanced math classes instead of the, the silly philosophy classes, I can get a major in math, too. And, and so they did. And I found out that the... Studying advanced math was more helpful to me as a programmer than taking more advanced computer classes. So everybody agreed, and I went and I did it. And I liked it so much that I wanted to take a, get a master's degree in math. I thought, yeah, I'll go and I'll really be impressive, don't my employers, if I have a master's degree in math, not just a computer science major and a math major. So I started pursuing that, and I found that as I got into it a little bit more, before I actually was accepted, that I, I had a, there was a roadblock, there was a limit in what I could do mathematically. I got all A's in my classes. But when I got beyond a certain point, I just sort of hit this roadblock that I, I couldn't progress any further. No matter how much I studied, I'd sit with my professors for hours, having them explain it to me. These were uh, kind of like independent studies that I worked just with a professor. And I just couldn't get past this barrier. And then I started doing more research and, and learned it. If you look at the, you know, the mathematical scale from 0 to 100, where 0 is you know, 1 plus 1 equals 2, and 100 is what the, the latest uh, uh, brilliant mathematician is doing at MIT and Stanford, I was at about 5. And I realized, you know, th this is fun, this is good, I love doing this, but this is as far as I can go. And I made a decision after I applied to a number of schools that I wasn't going to do this. This wasn't going to be a worthwhile, worthwhile pursuit. And there were people that egged me on, you know, Jeff, go ahead and do it. You know, just put your nose to the grindstone. You'll get through it. And I realized, no, I'm not. So there was this human limitation that I believe God put upon me that simply said, you know, don't go down this path. This is not a worthwhile path. There are other paths that you can pursue that will be just as profitable and just as helpful. And so I did. It was kind of, you know, humiliating because I, all these professors were saying how smart I was and how uh, good I was and to realize, no, I'm really not that smart and not that good and then take a different course. So in our contentment, yes, there is that sense where uh, we have to realize we are a, create, a creature under God's creation as well as God endowing us with certain gifts certain blessings, uh, certain limitations that, in a sense, determine where we go for our contentment. Uh, my daughter had the same thing. She was, wanted to be an engineer. And uh, a lot of her friends were engineers, so you got this kind of bee in her bond. That's what she wanted to do. And so she took a couple of math classes. She took a calculus and a calculus too. And I started noticing that, you know, she liked calculus and she did well in it, but she really struggled. And she went to Calculus 2 and struggled even more. And it was very, very difficult for her. And so I, I, when I talked to her one day, I said, Simp, you know, I know you got this be in your bond to be, in, be an engineer. But just remember, when you get engineering school, you're going to have Calculus 2, which really should be one of the easiest classes you take. Plus, you're going to have engineering classes that are going to be just as hard. And you're going to have these silly elective classes. So, and you're struggling right now with Calculus 2, which should be a breeze for you. And my, my daughter's smart. She's really a sharp girl. But she realized, too, that, yeah, Dad, you know, I, I really think it'll just be nothing but heartbreak 
if I go down this route. I'm smart in other things and I'll pursue them, but not this direction. So there are these limitations that God sovereignly gives us, makes a part of our constitution, that we also have to understand and learn if we are to practice contentment. So this is the basis of David's contentment, knowing his limitations as a creature in the sight of his creator and his limits as a man among his fellow man. And you can look at David's life and see this in many ways, can you not? Uh, take when he's being pursued by Saul. Uh, David knew he had been chosen by God to be king by this time, and, and Saul was, uh, God's cho- was man's choice, really, but not God's choice. And a number of times David could have killed Saul. He had the opportunity to actually take his life and execute him, but, but David did not. He understood that Saul was the Lord's anointed. He constantly used that phrase in referring to Saul. This is the anointed one of God, and even though one day I will be king, I have to do it the way the Lord desires to do it, and I will not lay a hand on this man, even though he pursues me and is trying to kill me. So David recognized his limits many times. Or uh, think of when he became king. Remember how he treated Saul's family. Normally when a king became a leader over another family, the first thing they did was wipe out the whole family of the previous king. It didn't happen with David. What did he do instead? He showed him kindness and and graciousness and mercy. It was something that that he could have done as king, that most kings did, but he realized his limitation, that this is not something that would please the Lord. Uh, When God told him he can't build a temple, David wanted to build a temple. He he looked around, he realized he's got this big, beautiful mansion that he lives in, uh, but the Lord lives in a tent. And that grieved David. And David said, well, I'll build the Lord a great, mighty house where he can live. And what did God tell him? No, that's not for you to do, David. You're a man of war. I want a man of peace to build my house. And so David acquiesced, said, okay. He he got supplies together so that his son could do it better and easier. But David sat down and said, no, this is the limit God has put upon me, and I will follow and I will obey that limit. That's part of David's contentment, part of his peace. And we can also see in David's life when he went beyond those barriers, uh, where he broke those, those bonds that God had placed him under. Anybody know a good example of this? What's the shining example in David's life of his disobedience? With Bathsheba. Remember what happened with Bathsheba. Saw another man's wife. He should have been out in war. This man's wife was in war. Uh, got her pregnant, slept with her, had the husband killed. And it did nothing but bring hardship to David's life. Nothing but hardship. And then we have the census as well, where he went beyond uh, the bounds God had placed on him and took a census. And uh, David suffered greatly as well as the nation of Israel. So uh, good, wonderful examples of David staying within these bounds and negative examples where he went beyond those bounds and the suffering that it caused him, not only him, but the people of Israel as well. Now, in verse 2, David moves from the negatives to things that he's not doing, not lifting his eyes up, not having a haughty heart, not involving himself in things too difficult. Now he goes to the the positive things, things that he does do. Uh, The first word here in verse 2 is translated surely or but by someone. You go ahead and read it real quick so it's in our minds. It says, surely I have composed and quieted my soul like a weaned child rests against his mother. My soul is like a weaned child within me. Now, 
verse 2, again, the word surely here, it's actually a, what scholars say is that this is actually a oath form, the word David is taking an oath, uh, words you would use to make a promise or an oath to somebody. So David is swearing here that he will compose and quiet his soul, or he'll be under a curse if not. The formula has an ellipse uh, that runs along the lines of like this, is may God do to me if I have not calmed and quieted my soul. So this is a strong resolution that David is making to compose and quiet his soul. Or a curse will be upon him. The word calm here, uh, it means to level something, to make something flat and level. Uh, It can mean to lie down or to be at rest, while the second word quiet means exactly that, uh, to be silent, uh, to be calm, still, or motionless. Uh, Then David uses two, uh, I think, those amazing metaphors to describe this rest and stillness in his soul. And David wants you to picture what what quietness is, what contentment is. Uh, He uses this beautiful example, like a weaned child with its mother, like a weaned child, my soul is within me. The word wean here is often used, uh, the actual root meaning of the word is to complete something, to deal fully with something or adequately with a task. Used in the context of nursing child, it means literally to complete the nursing, to wean. When I think of wean, for some reason, I always think of it, a wean child is one who, who's done breastfeeding. Okay, he can eat solid food now. He's pretty much done with the breastfeeding and moving on to other foods where the idea of it here is no, he, he's satisfied with his mother's breast milk. Now he's resting in that satisfaction, that, that delight. And that's, that's the idea here. Uh, a man or a child has all that he needs from the mother, and now he is resting, he is content and at peace. Um, again, the child, child is still an age where he needs his mother's nourishment, but he has just received that nourishment for the time being. All the child needs, he has received from the breast of his mother. I can remember when, when Jeffrey was after nursing, uh, when he would nurse, uh, he would just let out this deep sigh of contentment. He'd be all uh, crying and fussing, fists in the air before he got the bottle or the breast, and would give it to him. And he would, immediately he would calm down and, and just draw in what he needed. And it was all done. The hands would loosen. You could see his body just kind of become untense. He would turn his mouth away, and he just let out this deep sigh. <sighs> like, everything's right. I've got everything I need. And it was a beautiful illustration uh, of a contentment, uh, a peace and contentment that this child has, having been given all that he needs from the mother, all the nourishment, all the strength has been given to him, and now he is resting and content. And every time I read this passage, I think of that, that deep sigh that he, he gave. Uh, our contentment comes not from the world and its pleasures. Rather, it comes from God himself. Uh, one man says this, Wean from the world, the riches, honors, pleasures, and profits of it, as well as from nature, from self, from its own righteousness, and all dependence upon it. And as a child that is weaned from the breast wholly depends on its nurse for sustenance, so he, so did he wholly depend on God, his province, his grace, and strength. And as to the kingdom, he had no more covetous desire after that it was weaned, has, uh, after a weaned child has to his breast, and was very willing to wait the due time for the enjoyment of it. David was a man who had a whole kingdom as his playground. Uh, he could have reached his hand out and taken anything he wanted to for his enjoyment and pleasure, uh, to satisfy his carnal desires, yet, yet he did not. He, he was satisfied with what the Lord had given him. 
and wanted nothing more. Uh, this lack of satisfaction does not mean that we become ascetic, uh, that we no longer enjoy things of this world. Uh, it simply means that our happiness and contentment are no longer bound to them. They no longer center on the things of this world. We can enjoy them in their place, but we can also do without them if the Lord so chooses. Normally, I don't like to fill my sermon with quotes, but I made a mistake in doing this sermon. Normally, I, when I do a, a preaching the Psalms or study the Psalms, the last thing I do, if I do, is I read Spurgeon's Treasury of David. And I made the mistake of reading that before this, and there are just so many quotes that I read that and think, no, i got to say this. i got to say this. So that, that's why there's a lot of quotes in here. I try to keep it down to one or two, but there's, uh, Spurgeon's has so many wonderful things to say about this, and most of these come from his, his book. So if you're going to preach in the Psalms, read that last, or your sermon will be filled with quotes. And he says this, this is a writer that he's quoting, this weanness of soul presupposes a power left in the soul of loving and desiring. In other words, uh, we don't become passionless people. We don't lose our passions or our loves. It is not the destruction of its appetite, and that's what asceticism does and legalism does. It removes our ability to enjoy the world that God has given us by condemning those things that he's given us for our delight and for our good. It still recognizes them as Paul does. He speaks of men who forbid marriage and advocate abstaining from foods which God has created to be gratefully shared by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with gratitude. So this world that God gave us. It's still to be enjoyed. It's still to be delighted in. But now the focus changes from that world to God himself. And we recognize that the world is there for us to enjoy, but we don't receive our satisfaction, that deep satisfaction from it. He calls such men hypocrites, liars, that they are seared in their own conscience as with a branding iron. They teach doctrines of demons. Man continues, it is not the destruction of its appetite, but the controlling and changing of it. A weaned child still hungers, but it hungers no more after the food that it once delighted in. It is quiet without it. It can feed on other things, so a soul weaned from the world still pants as much as ever for food and happiness. But it no longer seeks them in worldly things or desires to do so. There is nothing in the world that it feels necessary for its happiness. The thing that it loves and the thing that it values, but it knows that it can do without them and is ready to do without them whenever God pleases. So see the idea of this contentment here. It doesn't mean we, we become ascetics, that we eat birdseed or we don't enjoy worldly things we do, but they're in their proper perspective. We enjoy them as gifts of God that God can remove, God can take away anytime he so pleases, and we are still expected to be content and happy without those things. Then the final verse, David, shows the source of this mindset. Where does it come from? And the final verse says these words, O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. Where do we draw this strength to get this humility from? It comes from hoping in the Lord. Instead of our finding our happiness and joy in the world and ourself and our pride, we find it in the Lord himself. And hoping in the Lord, we give everything in our lives over to him and allow, allow him to do with it whatever he wills. David calls not only himself, but all of Israel to hope in the Lord. We're not to hope as individuals, but we're to hope as a community, as a people of God, our hope is in the Lord. It's not only a momentary thing now while things are good, or maybe things are bad, but for now and forevermore. Not at just this moment, but forevermore. 
our trust is to be in the Lord. Our hope is to be in him. Not during some crisis moment, not during distressful times, but this time forth and forevermore, David calls on Israel, on the people of God, to trust in the Lord. And what a glorious way to end the psalm, calling all of God's people to hope or wait in the Lord in every situation, throughout every area of our lives, throughout all of the time that we are here on this earth, we are to hope in the Lord. This attitude was expressed by Jeremiah when he said these words, this is what the Lord says, let no wise man boast in his wisdom, nor let a mighty man boast in his might, nor a rich man boast of his riches, but let the one who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me that I am the Lord who exercises mercy, justice, and righteousness on the earth, for I delight in these things, declares the Lord. Uh, the, this idea appears in the New Testament writings as well. Uh, we see it in Romans chapter 12 where he says, Paul says, for through the grace given to me, I say to every one of you, not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but think so as to have sound judgment. Well, what is Paul saying here? Well, you're to think the way God wants you to think. And Paul lists all the gifts that are given, the grace given for different gifts, and we're to work within the bounds of those restraints that God has placed upon us in our function, in our work in the church. James expresses the same sentiment in chapter 4 of his epistles. He says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves therefore to God, humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Jesus himself exhibits the same attitude in Philippians chapter 2. We noted the, the humility of David that he possessed when he could have simply reached out and taken anything within his kingdom for his own pleasure or his own delight. Uh, instead, he submitted himself to God. What we'll think of Jesus, who was God incarnate, the whole all of heaven and earth was his to take. He could have simply offered one word and a legion of angels would have been bringing him whatever he needed. And yet, what did Jesus do? Well, Paul says in Philippians 2 that, that he humbled himself. He knew he was equal to God, but that's not what was important to him. He humbled himself. Uh, he became a bondservant. And being made in the likeness of men, Paul continues, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient, obedient to God here, to the point of death. So he stepped down from his heavenly throne, became a man, not just a man, but a servant. He became, as a servant, obedient to the one who sent him. Not just obedient but obedient to the point of death. And not just death, but one of the most horrible deaths ever invented by man, death upon a cross. That's the example that Paul gives us of our humility, how we are to humble ourselves. So I trust this humility uh, is being expressed through the Old Testament and New Testament and by Jesus himself. Now, some application. Let's look at an application. First, uh, this humility is not something uh, in which we are passive. Uh, we're not just simply uh, to sit back and let the do Lord do his work and we just sit around and wait for his power to work within us. Notice how David starts this. I have calmed and quieted my soul. He's not said I sat back and let the Lord's power overcome me. I have done this. This is action I have taken. I have made an oath that I will do these things. Whatever is required of me to be humble, to be quiet, to be at peace, to be at rest, I will do it. It is a resolution, or as we saw an oath, that David is going to actually do something. It is a recognition that my hope and my peace, my happiness, is dependent upon the Lord, and I will therefore pursue those things that he offers me while rejecting the things that the world offers me. 
It's not just a decision we make once in our life, in the early part of our, our walk with the Lord, but it's one that we have to make again and again. Last week I mentioned how when coming to Christ I had to make a decision that I could no longer hang out with my friends at the bars. I decided, well, I know I can't get drunk. That was a decision I made. If I'm going to be holy, if I'm going to be dependent upon God, if I'm going to trust him, I can't go out and get drunk with my friends. But I can still go out and hang out with them in bars and do things with them and witness to them. And so I started doing that. And then I realized, no, I can't do that either because I end up getting drunk anyway. So I had to make another decision. No, I'm going to do this as well. And I look at those first couple years of my Christian life, and there were dozens of times where I had to say, no, this is not right. I have to stop doing this if I'm going to trust in the Lord, if I'm going to humble myself and rely on the good things he has given me instead of what the world is still trying to give me, I must do these things. So it's a decision that all of us have to make, not just once or twice, but over and over and over again. When we see our hope being put in the world on things that, that, are, that are fruitless, that are uh, ridiculous, we have to come back and say, no, I'm going to trust in the Lord. I'm going to pursue those things that he desires that I pursue, that he approves of. We have and constantly making those decisions throughout our lives if we are to have this contentment. Uh, you young people, you'll have to make these decisions many times. The ones you make right now will, will pretty much determine the course of your life from here on out. Uh, married people, husband and wives, you'll have to make them together. At times you'll have to make them for your children, and they may not like it, but you still get the choice to make those decisions. Our, our flesh, the world, and the devil are, are constantly pushing against our faith, calling us to find our hope and contentment in its pleasures. And it is a daily grind in the Christian life to resist those things. If you don't find it a daily grind, you don't find it difficult, then maybe it's not being pursued enough. But it is hard, it is difficult not to pursue these things. Uh, the writer of Hebrews says that Moses chose rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. It was a choice. Do I pursue these fleeting pleasures? All the pleasures and delights that Egypt could offer me? Or do I go and, and do I suffer with the people of God? And his choice was to go suffer with the people of God, humble himself and suffer with God's people. And we do that with the confidence that God has given us everything that we need to be successful. He's given us his word. He's given us preaching and teaching of that word. He's given us prayer. He's given us each other as a community of people. And more importantly, he's given us the Holy Spirit to help us find our contentment in the Lord. I think one of the keys of contentment, and really, I really want the young people to listen to this, to hear this. Uh, the key to our contentment will be learning to be content when your life doesn't turn out the way you hoped it would be. We all have expectations. We all have hopes for our lives, what it will be like and uh, when we're young and even when we're older. And, and there's nothing wrong with that. And I'm talking, not talking about silly things like bucket lists or things like that, but we all plan what we want our family to be like, what we want our home life to be, what kind of career we want. And it's good to be thinking about those things and planning them and, and praying them. But when life doesn't turn out that way, and, and truthfully, most likely it won't. And you can still be content. I'm a, a very happy, content man. I think anybody who knows me knows that. Yet my life is nothing 
like I planned when I was 19. I wanted a big Logan-sized family. Well, maybe not that big, but I wanted a large, let's say, Richie-sized family, six or seven kids, and that's what I wanted. I, I delighted to think about that before I got married, even after I got married. And come to find out, Geneva's just not the pioneering type woman to, to have a lot of babies. First two almost killed her. We thought, well, let, let's stop here. Now, does that mean I'm all disappointed in life? My family's life, what I wanted it to be? I wish I didn't marry Geneva. By no means. The Lord still provides so much peace, so much joy, even in the narrow realm that he's given us that we should never regret, never be angry. So you plan your life ahead. Think about what you want. Think about the way you would be blessed. Just realize you may not get it, but you still will be more content than you could ever imagine yourself being. So even when life doesn't turn out like we wanted it to be, then we still are obligated to be content. And sometimes it doesn't always appear to be that way. Uh, what can be a blessing or contentment or something that brings contentment isn't always what it seems. An example this, I had a friend in, in seminary, first of all, everybody's idea of a happy marriage was a wife who could, who could cook, who could clean, uh, who's pretty, and who could also help you parse Hebrew verbs or study systematic theology. We all wanted a wife you know, who's just like us, who could sit up at night and discuss you know, the hithil parsing of vav middle Hebrew verbs. That's what we all wanted. And a, a good friend, my, in fact, my best friend in seminary, where, in fact, I contacted him, I had questions about this sermon here that I reached out to him in Israel for, uh, he found the perfect wife. I mean, she could go in, they would go and, and study Hebrew together at, at a deep level. Uh, very, very smart woman and very knowledgeable. And, uh, you know, he kind of bragged about, you know, how smart she was. And we had to settle for a woman who couldn't speak Hebrew or didn't know who <laughs> Tertullian was and people like that. But, uh, you know, I was content. I was happy. But uh, anyway, it, it seemed like the perfect thing for him. And yet, three years after seminary, they were divorced. It just didn't work out. It wasn't the right person. But he looked at something that was superficial. That, that was not really what the Lord said. This is what you need to look for in a wife. He took that, and it was obviously, I think, the wrong person. He could have been the wrong man as well, and it was a combination of both. So uh, what can seem to be the perfect thing, if you're not looking for the right reasons, uh, it can turn out to be a complete disaster, as it was with this man. Again, still a good friend of mine, but uh, just made a lot of mistakes in that area. So... Again, the emphasis here is that we seek what the Lord gives us. Uh, we desire things from him. Uh, sometimes he gives us those things, but he's not obligated to, to give us what we request. Uh, the question is, uh, you may be uh, single, hope to be married by now, and you're not. Uh, is your hope in the Lord or is your hope in marriage? Many of us choose spouses who at the time seemed to be believers, uh, who turned out to be unbelievers, who denied the faith, or maybe they turned out uh, not to be the believer you expected them to be, uh, what do we do? Is there still contentment? Is there still peace? Yes. Are we trusting in our marriage, or are we trusting in the Lord? Uh, you had dreams of walking side by side with your spouse in faith, uh, encouraging, supporting one another, uh, sharing that faith with your children through prayer and, and teaching, and, and now you find through no fault of your own, you're unequally yoked. Does that mean there's no contentment. There's no peace. And the question is, where is your hope? Is it in the Lord or is it in your marriage? Is it in your spouse? Uh, many of us, uh, the greatest desire we have is to see our children walking in the faith. Well, it doesn't always happen. Well, what do you do? Is your hope in the Lord or is it in the faith of your children? And there are many examples we could give. 
If I were to ask uh, you to stand up and, and talk about your, your heartaches, the things that, that you wanted that you didn't have, that you don't, didn't get, uh, we could spend a, a month of Sundays describing the heartache. And the answer to every one of those is, is your hope in that thing that you didn't get, or is it in the Lord? We can have two choices. We can come bitter, we can come angry and spiteful, or we can hope in the Lord. David had his hope in the Lord. And despite all the chaos that surrounded his life, establishing a kingdom, uh, warring with the surrounding nations, the trouble with his family, which were mostly his fault, by the way, uh, being ejected from his kingdom, being removed as king, being chased and pursued by a maniacal king, he was able to find rest for his soul at every point in that time, as we should as well. And I think one of the, one of the problems that we have is, is that we are, I know my problem, maybe I'm projecting my problems onto you, but it's probably a, a common problem all of us have, is that often we're just too earthly minded. We think that, that everything we get in this life, we have to get now. It has to be in this life, or it's not worth it. And that nothing could be further from the truth. Uh, I always think of the, the writings to the Thessalonians, Paul, in writing to them, how uh, that church was suffering. And when you suffered in Christian persecution, you suffered beyond anything that we've ever suffered. Uh, you lost your family. If you lost your family, you lost your career, you lost your livelihood. So imagine as this church suffered in, in its love and in pursuit of the gospel, imagine all the marriages that were split because of this. Imagine all the careers that were lost, all the property that was given up. And, and when Paul prayed for them, how did he pray? Did he pray, well, I, I'm going to pray that all these marriages would be restored. I'm going to pray that all the property that was confiscated from you will be given back. Or that all the families that were broken up will be back together again. That's not how he prayed for them. That, that's focusing on the world, on earthly things. Now, it's not wrong to pray for those things. But when Paul wanted them to understand his prayers, how did he pray? He projected his prayers to eternity. When Christ came back, to the earth. This is what he says. He says, may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and the Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. What he wanted to see, what was not restored marriages, he didn't want to see uh, wealth given back to the people or families brought together. He wanted them to be holy and blameless before God. So when Christ returned, what would he find in his community? Not a bunch of healed marriages. He wanted to find a people who were experiential and practically holy and blameless. His benediction, he prays this. Now, may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless, again, at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful and will surely do it. So a complete absence of even being aware of their earthly struggles, the individual struggles that each of those people have. He prays that they would, again, be holy and blameless at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. So Christ could come back to that community and, and say, these are a holy and blameless people, and I will receive them into my presence and bring them into eternity. That's where our hope has to be. If it's centered around things that we see, that we touch here, then, then our hope is lost. That's not hoping in the Lord. So our hope has to be beyond this life, into eternal life and what we receive there, what Christ will say to us the day he returns. Will he say to us, good, well done, faithful servant? 
Or will our lives be so, uh, so confused, so meshed in this world and its desires that, that he can't say that to us? Well, our hope is that we trust in the Lord as David did, as Saul did, as all the people of faith have done, so that when Christ does return, he can say, well done, faithful servant. Now, a, a word to those who are listening to this and are thinking, yeah, that, that's interesting, but I'm not a Christian, it's not for me. Well, it, it is for you. It's for all of us, not just believers, it's for everybody. And Christ spoke words like this, and I, I mentioned this last week, but I thought I'd just read the words to you. Uh, if you're here and don't know Christ, uh, don't believe in him, are still wrestling in this world uh, of the flesh and, and uh, the devil, and not a part of his family or part of his household, then uh, Jesus spoke words to people like you. Uh, very kind, compassionate words. He spoke to them in John chapter 6, where he says this, Truly I say to you, seek me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. So the people here, he senses that, that they're seeking him. These large crowds are following Jesus, but they're not doing it for the right reason. They, they simply, there's bread, there's food, and I'm going to come and get a free meal. Okay. What most people would do. He says this to them as a rebuke, do not work for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you, for on him the Father of God had, Father God has sent his seal. So here's this, this invitation. Look, you're, you're, you're doing all this work, you're dragging yourself across this, this barren desert, up and down hills and mountains, following me so that I could give you a morsel of food. That's work, that's effort. He says, don't work for that food. I've got another food that I can give you. And that food he calls what? Eternal life. A way to live forever. You eat this bread like your father's in the desert, you're going to die eventually. I want to give you a food that you can eat that will cause you to live forever. You'll never die. And what is that food? Well, the, the people respond. Therefore, he said to them, what do we do that we may work the works of God? Okay, I want this food. What is it? What do I have to do to get this eternal life that you're promising me? What mountain must I climb? What hill, what valley must I go through? If it was all this work just for some uh, regular food or regular bread, how much more must I do to get this eternal life, this eternal bread? What do I have to do? And he said to them, this is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. So put aside all your effort. Don't think about climbing mountains going through valleys, up hills, being parched in the desert for this food, simply believe in the one whom God has sent. And that's it. If you want this contentment we're describing, you have to wrestle for it, you have to fight for it. Yes, God doesn't just give it automatically. It's difficult, it's hard, but it's there for all of us who follow him. It begins by trusting, believing in the person of Christ. That all the blessings that God could imagine, are yours to pursue this contentment and this peace. It's as simple as that. It starts with a step, a step of faith, in trusting and believing in the person and the work of Christ, and putting aside your own works, putting them away, and believing solely and completely on him. If you have questions about that, then with elders, I'll be happy to talk to you, speak to Russ Rice, or any, any of the men can either help you or direct you to somebody who can help you understand what it is to believe in Christ what it is to believe in him and have that eternal life. Let's pray, Brandon. Our Father, we have indeed spoken of, of great things using a, a weak and shallow man, but we pray that your spirit would take these words and, and use them in our lives, use them to, to build up our faith, use them to encourage us 
in the person and work of Christ, to, to grab him by faith all the more, Father, all the harder. We pray that you'd bless us through your spirit, through these words, uh, through all that we do today. It would be uh, an honor and glory to you and to our Savior, Jesus Christ. We pray these things in his name. Amen.